Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn in it to Matthew chapter 11. This morning, I'd like to consider with you verses 25 to 30. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, by all accounts, people in America are tired. A brief survey of the news reveals that we are, in fact, too tired to safely perform our tasks at work. So a study indicates that 43% of workers at jobs that require sustained attention, things like driving a truck or operating heavy machinery, 43% of those American workers don't get enough sleep to think clearly and make good decisions on the job. At least one-third of the adults and a majority of teenagers surveyed generally don't get the recommended amount of nightly sleep. And it seems that the problem is getting worse, not better. Uh, People are, by all accounts, getting less and less rest. Entertainment streaming services means that you can watch TV and movies all night. So even when I was a kid, at some point, the TV stopped, right? You just got a sort of a weird uh, visual image and some, like, static noise. But now, you can watch Netflix 24-7. Social media allows people to message and scroll and communicate without respect to hour of the the day. Uh, Technology creates the expectation that employees will be available to work and to comment and consult whenever they're needed. Uh, American corporate culture increasingly puts a stigma on the idea of rest so that it turns out the majority of white-collar workers don't take their entire allotment of vacation days. We feel guilty when we take a break, as if we're more worthwhile when we're working and less worthwhile when we're resting, even though we might admit that we feel overwhelmed, we feel exhausted, we feel like we need a break. I think that sense of being exhausted, it goes deeper than just questions of sleep and work and vacation. There is a sense of fatigue that, anecdotally at least, seems to be growing, just a sense of anxiety and guilt and fear and purposelessness, right? The fear that we're somehow not measuring up, that we're missing out, that other people have figured out something that we haven't figured out, that maybe we're wasting our time, that we don't really know how to be happy, that the things we're looking to for help aren't really helping. The things we're working for might turn out not to be worth it in the end. I wonder what kind of burdens you're carrying with you this morning. Well, into our world, into this kind of world, 
Jesus speaks a word of promise this morning. Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sins but raised from the dead in victory, Jesus ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, every bit as able to keep his promise now as when he spoke these words 2,000 years ago, this Jesus bids us this morning to come to him and find rest, to find rest for our souls. So it's been my prayer this week as I've been thinking and preparing. It's my prayer this morning that, that you will find rest in him for whatever it is that wearies you and burdens you today. And so as we consider these uh, few verses that we have before us this morning, there's three things I'd like to see. Uh, three things. First, let's look at Jesus's prayer. And then second, Jesus's privilege. And then finally, Jesus's promise. Jesus's prayer, Jesus's privilege, and Jesus's promise. The plan is we'll go through those first two things a little bit more quickly and then hopefully spend a bit longer on the third. So first, Jesus's prayer. We see that there in verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 11. So if you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you know that, that this section that, that we find ourselves in has been about receiving and rejecting the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. So Jesus has been going around teaching, performing miracles. He's been revealing the presence and reality and nature of the kingdom of God that he's come to bring. Uh, Jesus was sent by his heavenly father to bring salvation, to bring blessing through his death and resurrection. And so he went about healing and performing miracles in order to demonstrate that his arrival was the beginning of this plan that would unfold and eventually, at some point still off in the future, uh, would result in him returning and making all things new. So in uh, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out into the surrounding region with this message, right? Calling people to receive him and to receive his kingdom. Uh, he says in Matthew 10:40 that when people receive the disciples, they are receiving the God the Father. They're receiving the one who actually sent Jesus. But what we see is that instead of sort of being universally embraced and beloved, there was actually quite a bit of ambivalence about Jesus. So some people could see what Jesus meant. They could see what his kingdom was going to be like. But others, like even John the Baptist, they were confused because Jesus didn't exactly meet their expectations for what the Messiah was going to be. Others openly rejected him. So the Pharisees at one point call him demon-possessed and begin to plot against him. And so it'd be understandable that if you looked at the way things were in Matthew chapter 11, right, where this message has gone out and been received with sort of mixed results, you could, you could look at that result and think, well, that didn't go according to plan at all. I mean, surely the thinking is the Messiah would come and he would be universally loved. He would be received. He would be honored by everyone. But here in verse 25, we have Jesus speaking. We have Jesus praying to his Father. He calls him there the Lord of heaven and earth. And in this prayer, he actually thanks God for this sort of mixed state of affairs. This idea that some people received Jesus while others rejected him, it turns out that was actually God's plan all along. Look there in verse 25. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such 
was your gracious will. So Jesus says there that these things, that is to say, the arrival of his kingdom in the person of Jesus, these things God has actually hidden from certain kinds of people. He's actually made it so certain kinds of people can't see the truth, namely the people who are wise and understanding. Now, why is that? That hardly seems sporting or fair. So why would God do that? Why would Jesus actually think to praise God and thank him for hiding his truth from certain people? Well, I think when Jesus talks there about the wise and the understanding in verse 25, it's a way of speaking about those who are at the very top of sort of the human achievement scale, right? These kinds of people are the best. They are the cleverest, the smartest. They are the most in the know. These are the people who have everything figured out. And it's not that there's anything wrong with being wise or being understanding or having things figured out. That's not wrong. In many ways, it's good. And it's not because God doesn't want people to know these things that he's talking about here. God doesn't hide these things from the wise and understanding because he's cruel or because he's aloof or he doesn't care about whether or not people know the truth. No, we know that's not the case because he does reveal them to some kinds of people, doesn't he? Jesus says that he reveals these things there at the end of verse 25 to little children. We shouldn't take that too literally as if only little children can know about Jesus. Rather, as a class, they represent the opposite of the wise and understanding. Over here you have the sort of the best, the highest achievers, and over here you have the little children, the simple. You see, Jesus is saying that God's kingdom, this salvation that Jesus has brought, is something you can only know if it's revealed to you. It's not something you could ever figure out on your own. No amount of human learning, no amount of advanced degrees and extensive research and complex reasoning could ever discover the truth about the kingdom of God. Instead, it has to be something that's revealed to you. It's something that has to be received purely by simple faith with the joy and the trust that a child displays when they discover something wonderful. The kingdom of God and Jesus' salvation is not something you discover through hours of spade work in a library, or through intelligence and wisdom. It's something that you come to trust because it's been revealed to you. Now, why would Jesus think that that's a good thing? Here he thanks his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, for this state of affairs. Well, in Luke's account of this prayer, he tells us that Jesus rejoiced. It's one of only two places in the Bible where we're told that Jesus rejoiced at something. So what is it about this way of doing things that makes Jesus happy, that makes him in a mood to praise God? Well, I think he tells us there in verse 26. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus sees these simultaneous acts of hiding and revealing as God the Father keeps certain kinds of people with certain kinds of approaches from knowing about the arrival of his kingdom, uh, but also making that salvation perfectly clear and obvious to other kinds of people, Jesus sees in that hiding and revealing something good and praiseworthy. And I think we can see two things. Two things about this act of hiding from the wise and revealing to the little children that makes Jesus so happy. Uh, first, it means that the Father has unfolded his salvation in such a way as to make it very clear that he is the one who saves. Right? If somehow we came to 
figure out the truths about the kingdom of God through our own wisdom, our own power, our own cleverness, well, then it would be well done us, right? That we would get some of the credit. We would deserve some of the glory. But what Jesus is rejoicing in here is that God does not save that way. He makes it so that the only way to experience the kingdom of God is through his sovereign and gracious revelation of the truth. It actually doesn't depend on wisdom and intelligence. It depends on God who saves. That's one reason I think Jesus is rejoicing here. The other, I think, is that in this act of of hiding from the wise and understanding and revealing to the little children, we see that God sent his salvation and he he didn't put the cookies on the top shelf, if you will. You know what I mean? Jesus praises God because he hasn't put his blessings, he hasn't put his salvation out of reach. He hasn't made it so that it's only accessible to a certain kind of person. I just think for a second how terrible it would be if God saw us lost in our sins, drowning without any hope, and he sent his salvation. He sent his son. He brought all the the blessings that we're going to see at the end of our passage this morning. He, He sends the promise of eternity where everything's been made right, where every tear you've ever wept has been wiped away, but, but God made it so that only the strongest, only the best, only the smartest, only the most morally upright could ever attain that salvation. Could you see how terrible that would be? If God had hidden these things from the little children and only revealed them to the wise and understanding, right? you'd always be worried. You'd always be tempted to despair. Right? What if I'm not good enough? What if I haven't figured something out? What, what hope would there be for the majority of us who aren't up to the task? See, friends, I think contemplating what Jesus is talking about here, the, the sovereign grace of God in salvation, it ought to fill us with joy. It ought to fill us with praise and thanks the same way that it filled Jesus. And so, friend, are you able to rejoice that God saves in a way that brings glory to himself? Praise God that he won't be found out purely by human wisdom and cleverness. But he reveals himself even to the little children, even to the least important and least significant. That brings us to the second thing we see in our passage for this morning, and that is Jesus' privilege. Uh, Look there in verse 27 uh, where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus' brief address to his heavenly Father is over. He now turns to speak, presumably to his disciples. And Jesus says there, all things have been handed over to me. Now it might remind you of a couple of things in the Bible. It might remind you If you're familiar with the vision that Daniel sees, Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet sees one like a son of man, and this glorious figure appears before the ancient of days and receives eternal dominion and authority. It might remind you of the end of Matthew's gospel, where the resurrected Jesus tells his disciples that all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Maybe we hear echoes of those passages here when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. 
Now, all things that he's talking about there in verse 27, that, that means all things, right? And it, but it seems in context like Jesus has a specific subset of all things in mind. And that is particularly knowledge of God the Father. He makes a few extraordinary statements here in verse 27. He says, no one truly knows him except the Father. That's why as Jesus prayed, we need God the Father to graciously reveal these things to us. Second, he says that he's the only one who truly knows the Father. The Father's the only one who truly knows him. He's the only one who truly knows the Father. So Jesus here sets himself apart from all other would-be religious teachers. He is the one who intimately knows and is intimately known by the Heavenly Father. And then he adds there that he alone has the authority and the ability to reveal the Father to whomever he chooses. So if you step back for a second and look at the bigger picture, you are never going to find God's salvation on your own. No matter how wise you are, no matter how clever you are, no matter how understanding you are, it will be hidden from you. You need it to be revealed to you so that you can receive it like a little child. And God the Father has given the great privilege of that work of revealing over to Jesus, His Son. Jesus alone is the one who knows the Father. He alone is the one who can and will reveal Him to whomever He chooses. So why is that important? Well, I think it's another reminder that we are dependent on the sovereign mercy of God if we're ever to experience salvation. Right? There's, there's not a lot of room here to understand it any other way. All things have been given to Jesus. No one knows the Father except Jesus and the ones to whom Jesus has chosen to reveal him. I think that's important because we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, Lord willing, thinking about this amazing promise that Jesus makes to us in verses 28 to 30. And it's essential that we remember that the person who makes this promise is the one to whom all things have been given. The person making this amazing promise to us that we're about to consider is the one who alone has the privilege of revealing the Father to us. He alone has the right to extend this invitation. He alone has the power to bring every one of his intentions to pass. And so let's move on then to look at our third thing for this morning, Jesus' promise. Look there in verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is so stirred up with love and gratitude and praise for his Father as he contemplates his Father's sovereign grace, as he contemplates the power and the privilege that's been given to him by the Father, that it overflows, it seems, into this amazing invitation to come to him. So let's break down these words that Jesus says here. Let's notice four things about what Jesus says in verses 28 to 30. First, notice who it is that Jesus calls. There in verse 28, he calls a certain group of people, specifically those who labor and are heavy laden. So what does that mean? 
Uh, Jesus doesn't really give us any specifics here, but I think we can come up with a pretty good idea of what Jesus is talking about without a ton of work. Right? Think about all of the ways that you labor and strive. Right? Think about the burdens that you bear. Uh, maybe you are exhausted because you're working yourself to the bone. You literally labor. Last night, Karen and I were having dinner with a couple, and the, the husband was telling us about a time he had to be hospitalized because of exhaustion, right? Maybe, maybe you're not quite there, but maybe you go, hospital sounds nice. That would, be, that would be a break, right? Maybe you have to work long hours at multiple jobs in order to feed your family or keep your kids in a good school. Maybe you don't work because you need more money, but because work fulfills something in you. It gives you a sense of meaning and value and success, and you've become dependent on that feeling. Maybe you work long hours because you can't bear the idea that someone else would surpass you. You want to be rich. You want to be well-respected. Maybe you pour yourself out in labor for others, not just because you love them, but because you're scared that if you don't, somehow you won't be enough, that God and other people won't love you if you don't kill yourself. And so you can't stop. It's not just those who labor, though. It's also those who are heavy laden that Jesus calls here. The picture here is someone staggering under an oppressive burden. What kind of things might Jesus be talking about? Maybe it's just the, the daily concerns, the troubles that we all carry around throughout our life. Right? It's not too hard to come up with a list. Right? There, there are all the ways that you're regularly mistreated by someone else. There are the bad decisions that you've made in the past that continue to flow into your life now. And maybe it's the sort of sharp, painful concern you feel for someone you love. Maybe it's a health problem or a a financial situation or a difficult relationship at work or at home or in your neighborhood. Maybe you feel heavy laden with a daily experience of anxiety and fear and worry. Maybe you're weighed down with doubt. You want to believe, but you're never at peace. You're always uncertain and questioning. Maybe you're weighed down by a need to be in control. Right? You can't be comfortable unless you have everything accounted for, unless you've personally managed every detail, unless everything is the way you think it needs to be. Right? So on and so forth. You could continue making a list. Disappointment, sin, fear, guilt. Right? Maybe, maybe you can't even name the source, but you just feel like you go through a day under a cloud, carrying some kind of burden. Right? If you carry a burden like that, if you're weary in any of those ways, or even ways that I didn't mention and I couldn't imagine, verse 28 there is for all who labor. It's for all who are heavy laden. It's, it's not an exclusive club. Your labor, your burden doesn't have to rise to a certain standard before this call applies to you. Jesus here has a promise for you. He has an offer for you. Second thing, notice what Jesus promises to those who come. There at the end of verse 28, he calls all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and look at what he promises. The end of verse 28, he says, I will give you rest. 
Right here, Jesus isn't just talking about a good night's sleep or, or a nap. No, he tells us there in verse 29, it's, it's something much greater than that. He says that it's rest for our souls. Right, what Jesus offers us here is, is far better, far more rare, far more precious than just a good night's sleep. Though for some of you young parents, I'm sure that sounds like a picture of heaven right now. But Jesus is offering us here rest for our souls. Before we think about what that means, maybe the best thing to do is just take a second and an ima just imagine what that would feel like. How, how great would it be to be at peace, even in the most difficult situations? How great would it feel to be free from worry and fear and anxiety and doubt? How wonderful would it feel to be free from disappointment and smoldering resentment, to be free from guilt and shame, to be free from sin's power over you? What might it feel like to wake up in the morning and instead of opening your eyes to a world of stress and fear and negative thoughts, imagine you looked out over the vistas of your soul and saw not a series of raging wildfires, but you saw what Jesus promises here. Rest. Peace. So what does that look like? Well, obviously it doesn't mean that our problems just go away. Though sometimes in his mercy, Jesus does just that. Right? There were lots of lepers, lots of blind people, lots of sick people that came to Jesus and he took away the thing that was burdening them. But that's not what Jesus is promising us here. Those healings that we read about in the Gospels were a sign. They were a physical picture that what Jesus was saying was truthful. That he had the power to deliver on what he's promising. Right? It may very well be that the circumstance, the trouble, will continue throughout your life. But in that circumstance, in that trouble, you can have rest. You can have peace. You can be okay. And that's because Jesus gives us ultimate hope. So are you overwhelmed with guilt? Does your conscience accuse you at every step, giving you no rest? Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus promises you forgiveness. He will Wipe your slate clean. He will take the worst things you've ever done, the things that make you want to puke when you remember them. Jesus will take that and throw it into the bottom of the deepest ocean. Your sin and guilt will be removed like a malignant tumor removed by a perfect surgeon. 100% of it gone. <coughs> and even that, more than that, he gives you his righteousness to wear as a robe. It's not just that your slate is clean. But Jesus draws his picture on you. You see, Jesus takes away our guilt. He takes away the sting of our sin. Are you exhausted by loneliness? Do you fear somewhere deep in your soul that you're going to die alone and unloved? Well, Jesus offers you the thing that you're looking for, the thing that other people have never been able to provide. He will love you with an everlasting love. He will never leave you, never forget you. You'll never find a better friend, a better spouse, a better brother. Are you exhausted by the need to be in control because you're afraid of what will happen if you're not? Jesus says, everything's been given to me. There is someone far wiser, far more competent, far more powerful, far more loving in control of this universe, overseeing the outcome of your affairs. So you can rest. You can sleep. 
because Jesus doesn't? Are you consumed by doubt? You actually don't have to figure everything out because Jesus has everything figured out for you. You might not get answers to every one of your questions, but you get someone who has all the answers, who is himself the answer to the most important questions. There is nothing else. There's no one else. There's no one better coming along. And so you can calm your soul. You can find rest. If you're burdened by fear and trouble, you don't need to know how everything's going to work out. You simply need to know that Jesus knows and that he loves you. And that his heavenly father, as we sang earlier, or as we confessed earlier using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, his heavenly father sees the sparrow fall from the sky. He's numbered the hairs on our head. Are you burdened by all the other places you've looked for rest? And we all have to figure out how it is we're going to deal with the things that plague our souls. We have to do something about the guilt and the fear and the unfulfilled desires and the physical pain and the anger and the hurt and the loneliness and the doubt. And so we, we've all developed strategies, strategies for soothing ourselves, strategies for extinguishing the flare-ups before they get out of control. So we drink too much. We crush a tub of ice cream. We watch Netflix till our eyes are dry. We look at porn or hook up with a stranger. We harm ourselves. We obsess. We exercise. We work. We excel. We succeed. We blame. Anything and everything to keep those feelings, keep those thoughts, keep those problems at bay. Right, but ultimately we know and our experience confirms that those things are like drinking salt water. Right, you get a moment's relief from your sensation of thirst, but you're made, the problem's been made much worse. And so you need rest. You need rest from this vicious cycle. You need rest from this slavery that's come upon you from all the other places you've looked for rest. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only one who can deliver. He's the only one whose rest doesn't make things worse. And that brings us to our third thing. Notice what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to do three things. He calls all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden. He calls us to come and find rest in him. And he tells us three things. First there in verse 28, he says we must come. Friends, that's the invitation that Jesus makes to you this morning. Notice he doesn't say get to work. Notice he doesn't say solve this problem or prepare yourself in this way. He says, come to me. Now, today, the way that you are. Right? It might not be easy. It might feel like a, a fight at first. Your instincts might tell you to go to those other things that maybe if you just looked for rest one more time in those ways and in those places, you'd finally find it. You might have to relearn patterns and enlist help from friends, but what, is, what you have to do is clear, and that is come to Jesus. So what does that mean? What does it look like then to come to Jesus and find rest? I think we get help from the second thing that Jesus tells us to do. There in verse 29, he tells us to take his yoke upon us. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a tool that's used to harness an animal for work. And, and so what is the work then that is required of us? What is the plow that Jesus wants to hook us up to so that we can pull it? 
Well, in John 6, 29, Jesus says this. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And friends, I think that's it. I think that's the work. That's the yoke. Believe in Jesus. The work that Jesus wants you to do is the work of coming to him, looking to him, finding your rest in him. So that when all those other things, when the the porn and the whiskey and the ice cream and the Netflix and the jobs and all the other things, the bitterness, the anger, when all those things say, hey, remember, remember that time you you kind of felt like for a minute you found rest in me, right? The, The yoke of Jesus is learning to believe that those things are a lie and that Jesus is the one who gives us rest. The yoke that Jesus wants to hook us up to is the yoke of finding rest in him, believing in him rather than all those other things, right? There's no way around the fact that you're going to have a master. You are going to wear a yoke in your life, either the yoke of sin and rebellion against God or the yoke of faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why he says there that his yoke is easy and his burden is light in verse 30. The yoke of sin wearies us. It destroys us. It never delivers ultimately on its promises. But when you come to Jesus, you're signing up to serve a master who loves you and who wants you to know rest. Jesus isn't needy, and so he doesn't exploit us. He doesn't abuse us. He doesn't weary us with excessive regulations and unrealistic expectations. Instead, he calls us to come to learn from him. It's not a static state of affairs. When you come to Jesus, he gives you rest for your soul. And he invites you to sit at his feet. He invites you to learn and to grow and to be transformed and to be changed. We learn from Jesus. And so when you feel the fear and you feel the anxiety and the guilt and the temptation welling up in you, you learn to find your rest in Jesus. You learn in that moment to to relocate your hope to seek out a lighter, better yoke, to learn in that moment that you come to Jesus for rest. And that brings us then to the fourth and final thing for us to notice about what Jesus says here, and that is that our rest turns out to be a person. Right? You see what Jesus is saying. When he tells us to come and to take his yoke and to learn from him, He's not really telling us to do anything at all. Instead, he's telling us where we can find rest for our souls. And that is in him. Right? Our rest is not found in a program. It's not found in a series of rules. It's not found in a bunch of religious strategies. Our rest is found in Jesus himself. He doesn't say, come to my religion. He doesn't say, come to my rules. He says, come to me. That's where we find rest for our souls. How do we know he can deliver? How do we know whether he can really handle all the things that are bothering us? What what if we run to him and there's a situation where Jesus can't give us rest? Remember verse 27, all things have been handed over to him by the Father, by the Lord of heaven and earth. There is, in fact, it turns out, no situation that Jesus can't handle. What if Jesus makes it worse? I'm already feeling fragile. 
What if I go to Jesus and wind up being crushed? I don't think I can handle another burden. I don't think I can handle another set of expectations that I have to live up to. His burden is light. His yoke, he promises, is easy. There in verse 29, even though everything has been given to him, he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. Brothers and sisters, what joy, what hope there is in those words. That our master, our Lord, our king, he wants to put an easy yoke on us. He's just saying, come and trust me. Come and believe that I'm the one who can give rest to your soul. Come and receive from me. And when we go, even if we go full of fear, we find him gentle, kind, humble. Friends, can you see the big picture? How can Jesus offer us all of this rest? How can he promise hope to us in the midst of the most intractable situations, in the midst of all the things that we fear, all the things that make us anxious? On what basis can Jesus free us from the exhausting condemnation of our shame and guilt and sin? How does Jesus remove from us the burden of never being enough? How does he deliver us from the false promise of all those would-be rest givers? Things that promise us rest but just enslave us. Well, he can offer all those things to us because of who he is and because of what he's like and what he's done. Think of it this way. Jesus is offering you this morning a yoke exchange. He saw you weary and heavy laden under an intolerable, unbearable yoke of sin and guilt and shame and fear and helplessness. And in his love, Jesus took that burden. He took that yoke upon himself. He lifted that off your shoulders and carried it himself all the way to the cross. See, Jesus, the perfect, holy, righteous one, the one to whom all things had been given, the one who had no burdens of his own, in his love, in his gentleness, in his lowliness of heart, that Jesus stepped into our world. And he took your burden. And he carried it to the cross. And there he died under our guilt, under our condemnation. He experienced our fear, our grief, our isolation. Jesus on the cross drank every drop that was in our cup of sin and sorrow, and shame. And though he died under that yoke, he rose from the dead in victory over it. And so now he offers us his yoke, a light, easy burden. The the burden of coming to a loving and gentle Lord who gives us rest. See, when we come to him in simple trust, he washes away our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He assures us of the Father's love. He promises us that one day all things will be made new. And right. And so, friend, if you have a better offer, by all means, go pursue it. But for those of us who have eyes to see, for those to whom it's been revealed, for those who, like little children, know exactly how to respond when they're given a marvelous gift, there's only one thing to do that is come to Jesus and find rest. Let's pray.
Our gracious Father, maker of heaven and earth, we join with the Lord Jesus in rejoicing in thanking you and praising you for your gracious will, that your salvation is not something discovered by human wisdom and intelligence, not something that's found out by those who strive, but it's something that you reveal to little children. So we pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would reveal to us, maybe for some in this room for the first time, for some perhaps it's a, a reminder, that the Lord Jesus is the only place where we find rest for our souls. Jesus, we love you. We praise you as the one who took our yoke to the cross and in exchange gives us forgiveness, adoption as sons and daughters, the promise of new life, eternity in heaven. Holy Spirit, would you help us to be people who look to Jesus for rest? Would you help us each day to take no other yoke upon us except the light and easy yoke of Christ? We pray all these things for our joy and for the glory of God. In the name of Christ, amen. Please stand in response to that message. Let's sing, My Soul Finds Rest.